Oh, please, haven't you done enough to me? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears on a Friday, and that's a good place to be. Glad to have you with us and glad, as always, to be working with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you, Benny? Doing very well. Hi, Captains. All is well up here. <laughs> glad to hear that. And Seattle is well taken care of now. Things have calmed down, simmered down, I hope. <laughs> simmered down now. Simmered down now. I don't know about that. It's been pretty warm, so we can just simmer up. Oh, okay. How about the protests? Yeah, it's kind of like taking a little bit of a backseat. You know, there's this other pandemic thing we're worried about, too, so. Yeah, well, we could write a book here in Florida over the last 72 hours. <laughs> I know. But California's number one. We're number two. Texas is number three. And they're interchangeable. Yeah. Although Texas seems to have leveled up a bit, but California and Florida, the bicoastal race to the yeah. bottom or the top, however you want to look at it, scary stuff. Yeah, technically you don't want to be any number one, two, or three of those stats. You definitely want to be on the other end of it to be good at number 50 or 51 or 52. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Which would and make we, you Vermont. Vermont. Right. <laughs> yeah, we, we notice every day we're, what's going on checking? where. We're paying a lot of attention to it. That's for sure. That and so many other things are on the table whenever we have our good friend Tori Ryder mm -hmm. with us. She said what? Well, she hasn't said anything yet. Let's give her her mad props and have a conversation about this, that, and especially the other. And this is right from her book called She Said What? Tori Ryder is a music and talk radio host whose voice is known to listeners in Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Portland, Oregon. Her not-quite-empty nest features a broadcasting studio and variously one spouse, two children, a rescued German shepherd, and numerous marauding chickens, which we have not yet asked her about. We welcome her once again to Manson Mitchell. Hello, Turi Ryder. Hi. It's so good to be here. When I was reading your very brief bio for such a, a long, storied, and interesting career, that's one of the briefest bios I've ever read, and when I read about the places you've been and what you have done and the stories from your book, she said what? We have been thinking about you, Tori, in light of women around the United States, powerful oh women, oh, the mayors man. of Seattle, the mayor of Chicago, places that you have done your radio work and what is going on in those cities. And we thought, we got to get Tori on just to see where she's at with everything. And only the clock will stop us. Uh. <laughs> That's for sure. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking all week long, Tori, that you are a mortal threat to misogynists everywhere. You have you know, been- I, I try not to, to let people know that. Um, it's funny <laughs> you should mention that. I just got a, an email last night from a, a good friend of mine, and he, he and I worked together back when I had a career in music radio. <clears throat> very early in my career, and he created this alternative music station that played really everything. You you could hear B.B. King, you could hear the Go-Go's, and he, he didn't ask me. He said, I'm surprised that feminists like yourself in radio didn't do more for the Go-Go's, and I'm thinking, 
wait, wait a minute, you know, that if you if you as they say unpack that on every level, that is, you know, there's this assumption I think or has been a lot of the time that women have the power to do a lot of things that we're still a few rungs down the ladder. But I'm pleased. I was pleased when I got his email to think about how some of that has changed. I mean, more of us are in some more control of the radio business, but it's also very depressing to think that more of us are not higher up in the in this particular industry. And I think that that's true of many of many areas of professional life now. I mean, we've made incremental advances, but you'd think by now, and the same goes, I think, for people of color. And it's like, how long have we been at this? Every 10 years, do we have to show up and go, hello, we're still here, and it's still not, it's still not even Stephen here. So, yeah, you're right on time with that question. And I'm, and I'm wondering if during these times there is a shot at us um, putting that, uh, that pendulum in the other direction because periodically progress is made. Obviously, progress was made in the 1960s. And so I'm saying, are the 2020s, will that be when we make a little bit more progress instead of uh, sliding into the same old, same old, you know, problems? And, and one of the things that I found, like, really heartening, did you happen to see on the uh, floor of the Congress um, the remarks that AOC made to our Florida representative, Yoho. Well, 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 you bet I did. I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. About that language there. Um, <clears throat> and then a friend of mine who's in radio did a whole thing about embracing your inner B word. But it, it's all very well and good. It's like certain other words that are forbidden to some and not to others. We can proudly claim that B-word title if we so choose, but do not, do not come to us from outside the B-word world and, and throw that word at us and expect us to just go, oh, yeah, sure, say what you want. Yeah, we'll just bow our heads and walk away quietly. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I've, I've actually had conversations where I've had guys say to me, well, you know, I can't be a sexist. I have daughters. I'm like, what qualification is that? (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, I love everything that I've been hearing regarding, um, you know, John Lewis and nonviolent protests, which have been were going on in uh, Portland until, um, you know, the federal government decided to throw a monkey wrench into it. But the fact that AOC stood up to the congressman and said, you know, I don't care about your wife or your daughters. Do you realize that if you can speak to me like that, that all men everywhere can speak to your wife and your daughters like that? And and I, I just, I was on the couch and I went, whoa. Yeah. Because, and and because, I'm somebody's <laughs> daughter. Yes. <laughs> well, I remember when I, um, I was working in Portland and I was working morning drive and um, the TV people, there's a TV and a radio station in the in the building, two radio stations, one TV station. And the TV people came to work early, got to drive into the secure garage underneath the building and park uh, in a lightly, a brightly lit garage with cameras and security. And the radio people, who had always been men, uh, pulled into a dark parking lot and had to wait for somebody to buzz them in in a completely dark parking lot 
open to the world outside the door. <clears throat> and at that time, I was being followed around by the literally a, a group. The what were they called? The white Aryan. Good grief! I can't even remember what they called. They were they were the people who got who lost all their money because they attacked and killed an African exchange student. These were seriously violent, bad people, and they were under the control of a guy who was in Southern California, who claimed that you know he wasn't controlling them. But it turned out that they established the con- the connection, and and he um, he was sued and. The people who kill the guys. So, so these guys are writing me notes and following me around. And I go into my boss and I say, I'd like to park in the brightly lit, safe TV station lot. And he said, well, why? And I showed him all the hate mail and I showed him, you know, all the threats. And um, as you guys probably know, and I'm sorry if you've had to find this out from experience, it's very hard to go after somebody for making threats unless they make a very particular kind of threat. Um and finally, I had to do a version of the AOC, and he's saying, well, why should, you're a professional, why should I, and I hated to do this, but I said, do you have a wife, do you have daughters, would you want them to be getting this kind of mail and then parking in a dark parking lot in the middle of the night with no, and, and it was like, there, I, the people who do public-facing work or who do unusual work, it's like these guys put us in a whole other category. We're not real people to them sometimes. Well, the idea that you were a woman in a man's industry, that you were one of the first women to regularly be a music disc jockey in something that was so dominated by men, you know, it had me thinking of you, especially for this interview and AOC, that you yourself have had these kinds of experiences where you have had to stand up for yourself like that and and be... A, a trendsetter, you know, you're, you're on the leading edge of, of um, you know, for all women doing this. Well, to be fair um, to the men I've worked with, I really have been very fortunate in that most of the men with whom I have worked as peers have been professional, uh, supportive where need be, uh, certainly never treated me as anything other than a, than a colleague and, and a professional. And typically, it's the people higher up the chain who have ideas about who you are and what you should do based on your gender, um, or for that matter, your race, or, you know, all kinds of other criteria that have nothing to do with the quality of your work. But when you're doing the work, as you well know, you don't sit there and think, well, I'm the first person you know, here to do this. You just do the job the best you can, and you try to make a success of it so that you can point to the success and say, well, you know, the audience doesn't care, or if you're running a restaurant, you know, the diners don't care. I mean, usually the public proof is, is, is enough, but not always. And sometimes you really have to work hard to get the chance. Um, to to get that public proof, and I, I think one of the nice things about AOC is that she's she's pointing a big um, spotlight on on the way that things will operate unless we we make a great effort to turn the ship around and into a into a better a better sailing. Um, but it, it has been interesting. I mean, it, it all kinds of. You mentioned the mayor of Chicago. 
um, who I really wish would see a tailor, but other than that, I think she's done an awesome <laughs> job. God bless her. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, yes. Yes. She, I, I didn't quite understand what was going on when at first she said, don't send any of your federal agents here, and then she somehow backed off of that? She finessed it. She's very smart. Okay. Um. And I, I'm not usually willing to go this deep into into my analysis of politics, but in this case, I will. So she used to be a, a, a prosecutor, and she knows uh, the federal prosecutor in Chicago pretty well. Um, and so she knows that our president wants to be seen sending these troops. That makes him feel good, look good. He wants to show these these people are on the ground and look, he's, he's taking action and these democratic cities are, are cesspools and out of control. And by the way, that's actually not true. And my family has been to several interfaith, peaceful marches with thousands and thousands of people. And to the credit of the Chicago police on our marches, they were lovely to us. They blocked traffic for us. Someone went down in the heat from heat exhaustion, and they gently gathered her up and gave her water. And I mean, no group of people is all one thing. So Lori Lightfoot knows this. She knows the federal prosecutors aren't all one thing. So what she did was she went to her colleague, former colleagues and said, look, if you promise me that these people will work doing the things that we need them to do and won't be out on the street shooting people with tear gas and, you know, whatever else they've got in their arsenal, come on down and, and do the things that we're a little shorthanded doing. And so she was able to say, great, President Trump, send us the help that we need. And then she's putting those people to work doing the things that we need them to do. So, so there, if, if because she got a guarantee from from the local people that they would be well managed. I don't know what the heck is going on in Portland, but it does not look good and I I fail to understand how that kind of chaos and drama can be unfolding night after night without I mean when the mayor can show up and get tear gassed and the governor can beg these people to leave it just makes me feel like I'm living in somebody else's country. Yes, I have had much the same reaction, Tori. And I can't help but think because I am of a certain age, I took civics. I mean, civics class in middle school, eighth grade specifically, in the spring of 1968. This is how our government works. there, And that made a mark on me. It was indelible. And I look at the situation now with the perspective of having been on the planet enough years, I can't help but draw a comparison between the actions of Donald Trump and his peculiar ambitions for our nation and what was portended, though it did not come to pass, had there been a George Wallace presidency. It's so scary to me because it's Trump is doing what in George Wallace's fever dreams might have been possible. That's an excellent observation. I, and I really, you know, it's very hard. Well, let me tell you a specific. So I, I have a dear friend who's been single for a long time, a lovely woman, nursed her mother through her final illness. And after that, reconnected with her high school a friend, not she didn't date the guy, and he is exactly in the Donald Trump demographic. 
non-college educated, white, male, middle-aged, and she's made him swear not to talk about his preferences politically because he is, and many of these guys are, if you met them on the street and talked to them individually, they're nice guys. They're just afraid. And I think when I think, and I'm, maybe this isn't true for you, but it is for me, when I behave the worst, it's when I'm scared. And I remember as a kid being told by my father, like, if you see an animal that's sick or wounded, you can't go near it because it's afraid. And even if it's a tame animal, it may hurt you. And I think what you're seeing now is the result of genuine fear on the part of people who haven't really been aware of how much privilege they have, but they definitely know that some of their entitlement is disappearing. And even if they're in their secret hearts, they know that they were the beneficiaries of a system that was not fair. They're very, very, very scared about the world they're going to live in if and when, and I hope it's a when, it goes away. And, and so they're not behaving well. And they've, they've put in power someone who is really not behaving well. And I really think it comes from a place of terrible fear. And I'm not sure what we can do for them other than assure them that, you know, there may be, in fact, some, some short-term difficulty. I mean, I watched my, my college-age kids um, who were very much aware that they went through the college application process, and they were definitely aware of some structures that were in place that were going to benefit people who perhaps on paper were not as qualified as they were for the things that they were seeking, but they were aware that there needed to be a righting of wrongs and that they still had access to enough and that in prior years people who looked like us had access to more than our fair share and they didn't they didn't complain about it they just you know they understood it but i don't i don't know if there's a way to explain to people of a of a certain age and and experience um that there will be enough for for, for everyone because maybe in their world it's it's not going to be enough and and i I think the government's really going to have to, to take an active role in making sure that we fix some of these systems, that you don't have to worry about what happens if you get sick, you know, with a broken arm or COVID-19. And if you don't have to worry about dying poor and alone because all you have is some tiny little Social Security check and all the money you earned you put into your family and your kids and there isn't enough now to take care of you. I mean, these things are really frightening. And... I understand that people are afraid, and, and I think we're going to have to have some strong leadership that says, you know, these, these big whopping big packages, they're not to bail out giant banks and corporations who have giant piles of cash that they could use if they wanted to. They're, they're to, to bail out people who want to go to work and can't. And may I also say that there's nothing more offensive to me than the idea that if you give a working person $600 a week, he or she will lose the desire to work. That's just insulting on its face. Yes. It definitely is. It's also insulting when Senator Ted Cruz responds that waiters and waitresses don't deserve $600 a week. Yeah, I've been a waiter. Ridiculous. You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned what you did about your children and the righting of wrongs because— that exact same thing happened to me. I was in, I was at Northwestern in the 1970s, and I can remember during that time that there was an effort made 
to make sure that Northwestern was more diverse at that time. And I heard the grumblings of, well, they don't deserve it, you know, that I, I, my grades are better, or I, I come from a better background, and, and they don't deserve to be here. And, and at that time, even at my tender age, I, I said to myself, uh, I, I wasn't angry about it, like they shouldn't be here. I was on the other side thinking there needs to be some kind of balance at some point, some kind of righting the wrongs, and as you uh, put it. And uh, I think it's been even more in my face uh, with uh, John Lewis's funeral and death that I have been um, kind of unawares for a lot of the time that, you know, I think, well, if everybody just works hard, they'll do better in the world. And that's really not true. And so when I, when I see all the unfairness that has gone on and I'm saying, oh my gosh, you know, the, the black population brought here, enslaved here for hundreds of years, and it's like, when will that get straightened out? When well, when do, when are that, people actually equal? It it takes a lot. Um, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did it? Go ahead. <laughs> um, my kids stop me if I've mentioned this to you. My kids go or just finished. The youngest just finished. Um, we have these high schools here that you have to test into. They're, they they have them everywhere in the city. There are like eleven of them now. And they serve varying groups. Some are more diverse, some are less diverse. Some are almost exclusively white and Asian. Part is the neighborhood, part is the test scores. Um, And some of them, very good ones, are almost exclusively of color. But what was interesting was um, my younger kid um, gets extra time on tests. He has an accommodation. So he took half of a standardized test at his um, very diverse uh, selective enrollment high school. And then the other half he took at a school in probably the poorest neighborhood I've ever driven through in Chicago, and I've driven through some. And the school was um, clearly as loved as it could be, but worn. And he came down from testing and he said, oh, my gosh, I have a headache. They have these computers that are like these cathode screens from the 1990s, and uh, it gives you a headache. He said, and why why do we have fancy Mac screens in our computer labs, and why does this school have, you know, green screens that give you a headache? And I said, you, you've just seen the difference between a school with a friends of the school network that can give hundreds of thousands of dollars to a public school and a school with a network of people earning minimum wage if they are working at all. And and even in a public school, if the public school funding is the same, people of privilege are able to get their kids better every single time. And And even if it's not that we come up with more money, even, it's, even if it's that we know how to work the system, or we have the kind of jobs that allow us to make a call from home, or the kind of jobs where nobody is going to get in trouble if we get on the phone in our middle of our workday and call our city government or call our congressperson or call. I mean, these are the kinds of things that if you're newly arrived here uh, in this country, or if language, if English is not your first language, or 
if you just, you know, if you didn't get that civics class that you got, <laughs> you you don't have that. That's that's privileged, and it's privilege you don't even think about having and using. It's like a like a little purse, you can just pull whatever you need out of it. And my kid was like, okay, all right, I get it. This is the difference. Even if the budget from the city for that school is the same as my school. You look at the friends of, we'll just call it City High, friends of City High donated like a million dollars last year. And it went to fancy computer stuff and instruments and and subsidizing the kids' AP classes. So if you're lucky enough to get into that school, even if you come from a poor family, you'll still get better resources. Now that is interesting, Turi. We've got a couple of minutes before a break, so let's follow up on this with you, Suzanne Mitchell. I knew you were thinking ah, about that. And this is Chicago land in Glenview, Illinois. We went to my high school reunion last October and took oh, a tour of the high school. Well, it was fabulous. Gary and I both had a good time, and we made a lot of new friends, which was wonderful. Uh, the thing that blew me away was the high school. They had added on considerably uh, just to the physical campus, some of the original was there, and then there was a lot of add-on to it. But it was so spectacular, and they said that every single freshman there gets uh, a um, a, lap, a laptop. One Google, one of those Google computer. Forget the the it, product name. Right. They get everyone gets their own individual computer, and it's yours. And it's yours. And they pay one hundred dollars per year for four years, and then when they graduate, they they just take it with them. And uh, and and so we were so deeply deeply impressed. But it's exactly as you're saying. It's a nice suburb. There is definitely a, a, an organization which supports it financially that's outside the school system. They're funneling money into it. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, on the one hand, I was very, very proud. And on the other hand, the word privilege was just blinking on and off in neon lights while I was there. And so, you know, I, I didn't feel exactly guilty about it, but I was I was very, very aware that there yeah. are some schools that are very privileged, and I happen to go to one of them. Yeah, we. I mean, and part of it, and, and if you roll that back, how is it that you're, some people would say, well, you know, my parents value education, and so they moved to that town. Well, there may be people of other people who value education, but in point of fact, I mean, I know approximately how old you are, and I know how old I am, and at the point where my parents could say, we want my kids to, I want my kids to go to this, you know, fancy suburban high school, they could legally buy a house there, but uh, people of color, in some cases, were legally barred from owning homes, and even if they weren't legally barred from owning homes, they certainly weren't going to be able to get mortgages, and they certainly weren't going to be able to um, be shown those houses. I mean, realtors would not show you homes in those communities if you were uh, black or Latinx. They, they just wouldn't take you there. I mean, good luck. Well, that was redlining. They yes. The redlining district. I told Gary, I saw the red lines. My father sold insurance for State uh. Farm. And ah. he would get telephone calls, people saying, you know, I'd like to have my house insured. And he would look it up on the map 
and mm-hmm. and he he would say, uh, oh, we don't insure in that area, and and so I I was in his office as a young girl. I mean, I'm under ten years old, and I could see where the red lines were and where he could sell insurance and where he would not. And and so, you know, I, I was aware of that now, but this is years later, this is decades later. And as I'm watching all of the, um, you know, John Lewis funeral and, and all the experiences that he had, again, I, I, I came to when will this end? When will this, what needs to happen that this will end? And, and I think the election is, is just barely the start of it, and, but there's a lot of work that needs to go into turning this this train around. Yeah, and and people, you know, there is real fear, and I, I think, you know, when you're holding on by what you feel is your, your last ounce of strength to a fraying rope, you hold on more tightly, and the perception that if other people do well, you'll do poorly is is really real. And in some cases, you know, it is justified. I mean, if you are looking for a job and they're looking to diversify your workforce, um, you may not be considered for a job you'd be qualified to do. Oh, I have to tell you a story. My worst, my worst wife moment. You ready? Okay. Okay. So, (laughs) um, my husband, I happen to think he's very handsome, you know, silver hair, blue eyes, very fit. He, um, when we moved back to Chicago from California, he was offered a position where a guy was retiring, and the guy had been there 40 years, and they hired my spouse, and it turned out they really weren't ready for this guy to retire, and they expected my husband to be just like this guy, and it didn't go well. And for the first time in his entire life, my husband lost a job. And at the age of, you know, middle age, right? First time ever, that he, which is hilarious to anybody in radio because we lose jobs like every 15 minutes in general. You see somebody who's been at the same station for 10 years, you about nominate them for Radio Sainthood. Anyway, he's applying for jobs, and he's not, you know, he doesn't have a lot of experience, you know, being unemployed. He's always had people come find him, so he's applying, you know, here, maybe a few weeks later there. And I am getting annoyed. And I go in and I say, what the heck, you know, can you move a little faster on these applications? Because, you know, I know you're a hard worker, but this this is not going to happen in any kind of timely manner if you don't work faster. And he said, well, he said, I'm a little depressed. I think, um, you know, in my middle age, they're they're not really looking at people necessarily who are my age and um, they want younger people and I stopped him right there, and this is the worst thing I think I've ever done to him in in my marriage. I said, oh, really? You mean you're not going to get a job because of who you are, regardless of what you can do? You mean who you are is going to keep you from getting a job? You'd be really, I'm so sorry. I was really mean. I was so mean. I get it. I, I think that... I mean, I think that there are a lot of people walking around who who live with the burden of um, we they live not with the being able to get a job right. every day. You know, this right. is their life. I'll give you another story. Um, my kid, high school kid, got into a little typical amount of high school kid trouble, right? 
and I was pretty mad at him. Uh, and I sat him down. And my kid is Mr. You know, liberal. I'm going to work for the liberalization of all. He does. He talks the talk, and he, you know, he's out there marching. But I sat him down and said, "What if one of your friends who was black or Latinx got in trouble for this? How do you think it would be going for them right now? How, how do you think our Chicago police would be handling them right now? And when you really stop to think about it." If you're a white kid in a big city, you, you walk around with so much. You have like a bank account of privilege. I've had the Chicago cops say stuff to me, assuming I would agree with them. That makes it absolutely clear that if anything goes wrong, they're never going to look at me. I know who they're going to look at, and it's not me. Let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to reshuffle the deck. There's always something to talk about, something meaningful when we have Tory Ryder on the air with us. If it's personal, if it's political, if it is social and sociological, we definitely know the right person to call. And we're so happy that Tory joined us today. Give us a couple of minutes, then we'll be back with more conversation about this, that, and the other on Manson Mitchell. You're attuned, and I mean not just tuned in, but attuned to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So talk, they hear you. You can do it if you try. 
On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Tori Ryder with a discussion about powerful women in the news today. Misogynists, beware. On Saturday, Tanya and Joey Medea, paranormal researchers, have helpful hints about how to live in a haunted house. Rattle those chains. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. It's not C.C. Ryder, it's Tori Ryder. <laughs> Tori Ryder is our guest today. She's the author of She Said What? Tori, if people want to get your book or connect with you, I understand you also have a podcast. Please let our listeners know how they can hear more from Tori Ryder. Well, the podcast, which does not do any kind of politics, I want to add. If you, We, we take a break. Um, I have a podcast partner, and it's called Tori Ryder's She Said What?, and if you just put in T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R podcast, I'm sure you can find it any place you get your podcasts, on iTunes, on Spotify, and we have a lot of fun. Um, the other day I figured out that if I needed to go to the hospital with COVID, I should call the Amazon truck. They're faster than the ambulance in my neighborhood right now. <laughs> so we, I also, you know, we, we, have, we have COVID-related conversations. I don't know about you, Suzanne, but I think until this pandemic is over, there's not a woman in America who's not wearing a sports bra right now. That's, that's all we're wearing. We're not going anywhere. It's sports bra city. And at this point, I'm never giving up the sports bra. If I have to be a bridesmaid in some wedding, I'm only going to go in a sports bra. Had enough. I mean, you sit around wow. in, your, in your pajamas and work in your robe long enough, you just lose all respect for the conventions of, of doing business. And I think that the, the underwire bra was the first thing to go flying out the window. Well, confessions uh, are no bra and hardly any makeup. There you go. No, makeup. No I bra, had, no I, makeup. I yeah. had, well, which brings me to answer the rest of your question. So there's the podcast and the book, of course, you can get on Amazon, but I love supporting independent bookstores. So um, it is published by an actual indie press and not by me. So it's easy to get it in a bookstore. Um, you can just go in, and it's T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R. And on the Manson Mitchell website, you spell my name correctly, so they can always look that up. And um, so the podcast, the book, and then I, it's been really interesting seeing what kinds of online events people are creating. And just last night, I was invited to be part of this absolutely sweet event called uh, Laugh at Home. And it's happening every other week, and it's a young young woman who does uh, comedy and one-woman shows, and her whole family's involved. And they had several w- very much better known than I am, women comics, and there was also a musical interlude where she sang with her sister beautifully. And then they had uh, feminist non-trivial trivia. So I learned about the women who overthrew the dictator El Jefe and the first woman who, who made a computer with Lord Byron's daughter and all in an hour and a half and for 10 bucks that went to a fabulous charitable organization. So this is the kind of thing that people are doing in the midst of a pandemic that is, it was like being taken to a place just to be part of this. And those things are out there and um, not all of them even cost 10 bucks. So I'm doing as many as I can because it's, it's good for, I feel like it's good for everybody. It's good for me. It's good for the people who come. And sometimes we raise money for good causes. So 
that's and you guys, you know, you create a thing that people can listen to on the air or on a podcast, and it makes people feel a little more connected to the world. So you understand this just as well as anybody. If our uh, hopes and our intentions match the reality, that is a very good thing. I love the way you expressed that, Tori. I wanted to jump into something else. God, I could go about anyway. I'm just going to splice this and then uh, respond as you will, Tori Ryder. First of all, I had to get my rage out yesterday. And by the time I went to bed, I could just shut up, go to sleep, wake up in a better frame of mind. But I will admit to one and all that I was screaming at the TV yesterday. And Suzanne gets fed up with that. They can't hear you, she keeps reminding me. <laughs> there, but, but when I found out that Herman Cain had died, I was yelling at the TV. What do you think's going to happen when you show up in Tulsa, even though the crowd was far smaller than they hoped for, but still thousands there? You refuse to wear a mask. You're calling COVID-19 a hoax. People are fed up, you know, all caps in a tweet, and you show up there with your family, your friends, your entourage, sitting around you, nobody wearing a mask. Then nine days later, you were diagnosed and very soon thereafter, you are, you are checked into, admitted to an Atlanta hospital where you fought valiantly for a month before you died. Now, I mean, what am I supposed to say about that? What is it going to take for people to realize that this pandemic is not a pandemic because nobody plans to go out of the world that way? Yeah. I mean, you want it. It, put, it makes you a. a person you don't want to be whenever one of these doubters gets sick and either makes it through or dies you know but gets seriously ill it, it makes you the kind of person we're going see see there go ahead and complain now you know go ahead and call it a pandemic now and then at the same time you're like this is a human being this is a right. human being who is ill this is a human being who deserves our human compassion it's really a challenge and you know who I think about when I hear about a, a Herman Cain? I think about the people in the hospital who have to take care of him and risk their lives putting in his tubes and taking out, you know, what um, I have. They're the, I, as sorry as I feel about Herman Cain, the people I really feel sorry for are the people working in hospitals and risking their lives. They lost another doctor in the ICU in, I think it was Baltimore, 56 yes. years old, right. you know, dedicated his whole life to working in this city hospital. And I think, I think this, the, the story that made the biggest impact on me as to the toll that this takes when people aren't careful and then they get sick, yes, their families grieve. Yes, their children are, you know, left parentless. Yes, they, you know may be plunged into poverty. Yes, they may have crushing medical bills. But, this, but the story that got me, I'm pretty sure it was the New York Times. One of the hospitals in New York that was over, over flooded first, the people who worked in the supply room, handing out the PEPE that they had, handing out those things that go on your hospital bed, giving out all of the supplies, minimum wage, mostly of color, Every single one of them who worked in that department in the hospital is dead of COVID-19. And oh what did they oh my ever do? Gosh. What did they ever do to <sighs> deserve being put at risk like that for a $15 an hour job handing out supplies? How dare the Herman Keynes of the world put these people at risk 
that's the part where I have it an almost, I think, an impossible time finding compassion because it's, I mean, it'd be one thing if you say, you know, I want to go out and get drunk and fall down a flight of stairs. When you go into the hospital, they'll patch up your bones, but they're not risking their lives. When you go into the hospital with COVID-19, you could kill everybody there. Yeah, that is true. P- potentially, in theory, certainly. And in the case of Herman Cain, and he has a lot of company, you show up at a big event uh, out of fealty to Donald Trump. And not only did Herman Cain get the virus and die from it after a month of agony, how many people did he infect? And we if it isn't him, know. it's this other person or another or another. But OK, now I'm going to make a really horrible, crass joke. Judging from his history of unwanted advances, probably some women who are never going to admit to it in public. Ah, Sorry, you could just cut that right out if you need to. It's it's an extremely difficult thing. In Washington State, where they had the first recorded case, though there may have been one before that was unreported until much later out of California. But before New York, there was Seattle and the nursing homes there uh, in Kirkland, Washington. And yet they still, uh, and Benny would know more about this, he's up uh, front and close to it, whereas we're hearing about it in Florida. But even in Washington State, where they have some mighty enlightened people in government, chuckle if you will, you're well governed. I live in Florida, don't tell me. And yet they still are fighting people. You know, middle-aged, well-educated men, for example, are seen around town not bothering with a mask because what, that's Washington macho? Or something, and they seem to be not cognizant of the damage they can do, not just to themselves, but to several people around them per yep. person who is acting yep. in a scofflaw manner. And I have to admit, I mean, early, early on, like at the very beginning, I, I kind of looked askance and made a little fun to myself of people. I mean, I remember at the very early days of the pandemic when people were rushing to grocery stores and buying toilet paper, there was a mother and a daughter, at least that's who they look like to me, and they came into Trader Joe's and they put masks on. And they felt like so ill at ease being the only ones in the store wearing masks, they took their masks off again. And in the very early days of the pandemic, when people were just kind of trying to spring back from each other, I hugged the woman who checks out your receipt at Costco because people were just being so terrible to her. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to hug you. I, I don't care because nobody really got it yet. But now, surely, you know, there's no way that you cannot know. And I, I've said, you know, the, the biggest hypocritical speech is, you know, I'm, I make my own decisions, and I am responsible for myself, and they're trying to take my choice away from me. And I'm thinking to myself, really, will you sign, will you sign a document that says you will not call 911 and put the paramedics and the emergency room technicians and the admissions clerk and the nurses and the doctors and the supply room people and the respiratory therapists? Will, will you sign a document that says you're just going to die right here at home? On your own? That's right. And don't take up a perfectly good ventilator. Right. A hundred right. years ago. And now I sound during... like I'm just making a stump speech. I'm sorry. I'll shut up now. I'm just <laughs> That's okay. You know, That's I'm okay. Gonna I'm gonna by TV, Gary. I'm going to yell at it. <laughs> Most people were not alive during the last pandemic in, in 1918, over a hundred years ago. But Gary found something that was completely different when it came to mask wearing. 
And that was that mask wearing was so common in 1918 that if you did not wear a mask, you were called what, Gary? A mask scofflaw or a mask something? Um, I I forget what the exact term was, but there would be people standing there in the streets with signs saying, wear a mask or go to jail. Wow, this was in I didn't know that. That's cool. 1918, 1919, and look at what we're facing a century later. I, that's really something. I'm impre- I'd love to see the stories about that. I, I know that this is going to make sense in a second. We used to take our dog for walks in this beautiful cemetery uh, in Oakland where we lived, which, by the way, no matter what Donald Trump says, is actually a very lovely place to live. Um, And this particular cemetery was designed by the same guy who designed Central Park. It's exquisite. It's up on a hill. It has three-way views. And and they welcome people with well-behaved dogs on leashes. And we could walk past just thousands of markers from people who died in the 1918 flu. When I first started going, I was like, why don't these people die in 1918? What was?" And so I, I went and looked it up because I was an ignoramus. And sure enough, the 1918 flu. Yeah. Yeah. Just, well, at this point, don't you think we ought to delay the election? Yeah, that we could do because, of, <laughs> you know, it's the doggone postal service with all of the fraud just make well, it up, create diversion say. after diversion. Just in here, and speaking of the, say. I'm all in favor of moving the time of the election. Could we have it in two weeks? Yes, we exactly. It, you know, that'd be a great time to have it. When uh, when we got to the 100 day 100, which was Sunday, 100 days to the election, it reminded me of the beer drinking song that I used to sing in college. <laughs> and, and so every single day, I sing the, the song to Gary. Now, I've substituted all the beer stuff for political stuff, but, uh, you know, oh, I already sang it verse. today. You just one verse. Yeah, one verse. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I get to hear it every day. <laughs> you know what? Be glad you married a woman who will sing it to you every day. And may she continue to sing with healthy lungs for the rest of the how many days is it now, Suzanne? Well, 95? 95 days. Oh, God wow. bless you. That's better than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. We've got a few minutes left. Let me go to the other side of the ledger, election-wise. You know, Turi, I'd be perfectly fine with it, but I'm to the point where if Joe Biden, whom I will very happily vote for on November 3, and that is when the election will occur— it's going to be anticlimactic if he actually chooses Kamala Harris. I don't have any problem with her. That's a great ticket as far as I'm concerned. But there are these women of color who would be really exciting alternatives. Look at the foreign policy expertise, the national security smarts of a Susan Rice, for example. Oh, you read my mind. I think that mind. would be terrific. Yes. Oh, you read my mind. I mean, look, I, I, if he picks Kamala Harris, it's not going to, you know, I'm not going to start tearing my hair out, but... I I think he has some great choices, and um, and I still I think it would upset some people, but I I still think that Elizabeth Warren has been an historic fighter for the very people who are the most affected by the pandemic right now, and I wouldn't be unhappy with her. Susan Rice, very sharp cookie, takes no crap from anybody. I mean, he, it's nice to have an abundance of choices. I mean, he could almost put all of the contenders on a dartboard and throw and any of them 
I mean, I, I have th- those bumper stickers that say any functioning adult. I, I'm I'm right there. Well, and, any, and, any of them, any of them would, and would we, be. And it, it looks like to me from where I sit, we are about to have uh, the first woman in one of the top two positions after a couple of false starts, several false yes. starts. I still have a Mondale Ferraro pin here in my office. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I well, like, I've got my own collection of buttons. eBay's good for that. It used to be I had to go scour the stores at Pike Place Market to find those where I did and in the malls. That, that's kind of a fun thing. A lot of that is a lost art. When you and I were kids, Tori, it, it was, yes, we have bumper stickers now and some of them are creative, some are obscene. But back in the day, you were proud to put that on your bumper and then you'd spend months scraping it off afterward. Or you would sport your button and there would be the t-shirts and the hats and all that. I see relatively little of that anymore because everything seems to be mediated through cable TV. And talk radio. Interesting. Inter- I hadn't really thought about the reason why that was, but yeah, that makes that makes a kind of sense. Yeah, I will say that it is true that eBay has sucked a lot of the joy out of finding obscure things. Um, and I and sometimes I buy stuff just to prove that I I remembered accurately that they existed. <laughs> I, I have this I have this giant box in my office of. <clears throat> when when we when I was little, I was growing up in in, in what was then rural Maryland. Um, my dad was in working for the army, and so we lived near the base in this little town that's now a suburb of D.C. but wasn't then. And I had this toy where it was called the, it was the sh- it was a showboat, and it was like four feet long, and it had a little stage, and they gave you scripts and little cardboard characters, and you could do Pinocchio or The Wizard of Oz or I forget what all else. And I, nobody else I knew had heard of this toy. But on eBay, there were like six of them. So I bought one. I have no use for it. And I've never opened the box. But it, I just wanted proof that it really existed in my childhood. It was probably one of the silliest things I've ever bought. But every time I look at it, I feel happy. And that's reason enough. I've tried to unload coffee mugs from Disney World. Forget it. You practically have to offer to send it for free and pay for the postage just to get it out of your house. Yeah, (laughs) eBay that doesn't work. The pandemic has been good for some of that in my house, but I mean, you just sort of you. I sort of wonder who's buying this stuff, and it just kind of circulates like this giant. I guess this keeps it out of the landfill a little longer. Well, that's reason enough. Tori Ryder, we are delighted, always, my friend, to have you with us. Always a pleasure. Her wonderful book, biographical and insightful. And funny. And funny, of course. The book is called She Said What? Tori Ryder, T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R. Always a pleasure, and we hope to have you back again soon. How about after the election? And we'll do the post-game analysis. I would be so honored. Thank you, guys. And and keep yelling at your TV set. Maybe it's working. All <laughs> right. Stay tuned. Coming up next is Christine Upchurch Show, followed by Susan Harmon Experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on Seattle's AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone.